people who read your emails, people who read your tweets, people who read your Instagram, they're not looking for to listen to you for an hour. They're barely looking to look at your picture for one half second. They're not trying to hear you for an hour. It's a very unique and different audience. And if you can't cater to that audience, you're in trouble. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. The quote for today is from J.P. Morgan. The first step towards getting somewhere is to decide you're not going to stay where you are. Our guest today, Jordan Harbinger, is quite familiar with redirecting his steps to even bigger and better things. He was previously the co-host and co-founder of the chart-topping Art of the Charm podcast and his new podcast, which he started just last year in his namesake, The Jordan Harbinger Show, is now uh, one of the most popular podcasts in the world. So Jordan, welcome. It's really uh, it's exciting to be talking to you today. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. You know, I, I have to admit, little, little, you know, a little intimidated here interviewing a podcast led uh, legend. It feels feels a little meta, and that you know, you'll, you'll you'll be judging me. So take it easy on me, and we'll uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get some good information here. No, I mean, I'm not going to take it easy on you. I know I'm supposed to make you feel comfortable, but I really kind of don't want to. So I'm going to let you sit in that nervousness. I had to do it for 12 years. You can do it for 15 minutes or an hour, right? Perfect. Come on. So you're intentionally making the technology not working. That's to, right. That's uh, right. That's right. It's, it's all a mind game, right? Like keep them on their toes. Teaching by doing. I, I, I like it. That's right. That's right. So before immersing yourself in the world of podcasting, you were actually an, inter- an attorney. Uh, what, what led you to start a career in the law? Well, funnily enough, it was how a lot of lawyers get into it. They go, um, I don't know what I want to do. And college is almost over and I should probably figure this out. And then some relative who's like a gym teacher or, you know, works at another retail outlet or something, which is in my case, my family is like, you should be a lawyer because you talk well or talk good, as they say in Michigan. Uh, And I was like, oh, okay, that's a good idea. Or someone goes, you like to argue, you should be an attorney. And it's like, oh, great. Or a law degree opens doors, which is kind of like a bumper sticker that you see on people whose kids went to law school because they're paying for their $168,000 in student loans (laughs) in the beginning. And so that's how this happened, man. It was not like, I want to be a lawyer. It's so awesome. Or even like I watch Law and Order and that looks great. It was more like I'm a, I've tried to get a job at Best Buy and they said, OK, you can sell CDs. And then at age 24, I'm sitting next to this guy, you know, speak three languages. I've got two undergraduate degrees. And then I'm next to a 17 year old kid who's like, I just got my driver's license. And we are making the exact same amount of money, only he's been there longer and is about to get promoted. And I'm like, what happened? Right. So that's that's how I ended up in law school. Seriously. The people with those bumper stickers, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance. Right. That's just oh, yeah. <laughs> that's justifying uh, what they already spent. So you went to law school and we'll get into how you got into podcasting. But I also uh, heard that you speak quite a few languages. So what what is the current count? Five is the current count. And I plan on probably stopping there. Um, there's a lot of languages I would love to learn. But, you know, there's a certain element of practicality that says, hey, man, knock it off. You've got other things to do. Has it always come easy to you? Is it something that's easy and you like to do or it's easy and you don't like to do it? Or And, and I'm curious, like, which one's your favorite? 
Yeah, so right now I'm learning Mandarin Chinese. I've been learning it for seven years part-time. I'm not sitting here studying full-time. I study probably three hours a week. So it's something that's slow-moving. But it's not something that's always come easy. Funnily enough, I remember my French teacher in high school saying, languages aren't easy for a lot of people. Don't feel bad. You know, I get like a C in French. And then when I went abroad as an exchange student to Germany, I ended up in the former East Germany back in the 90s. And I remember going there and I remember my mom saying, you know, you're not really that good at languages, but maybe you can change that. And I remember going there thinking, I'm not good at languages. I'm not good at languages. I'm not good at languages. And then at the end of that year, I had better German than any of the other exchange students in the entire country of Germany who had gone for that year. And my parents were like, what changed? And I, I went home and I tried to figure this out. And I realized I'm not bad at languages. I was bad at memorizing spreadsheets that had verb tables in them because that's not how humans learn languages. That's how that's how French teachers who learned how to teach in 1960 teach French language. But that's not how humans learn languages naturally. You learn it from speaking and walking around in immersion and reading and things like that. And so the fact is the teaching system was flawed. It wasn't that I was bad at languages. In fact, when I came back, the kids that were really supposed to be good at languages, the one who got the ones who got all A's, I remember taking languages with that, some of them in college, you know, because a lot of my high school went to the University of Michigan. And I remember them going, I can't wait to quit this. I hate this. I'm not getting any better at this. And it was true. They were just the good students who would sit down and memorize that verb table, but they were never any better at speaking the language. I learned more in a month of living in Germany that I learned in seven years of taking French. And it was because of the teaching method. And, and that's all there was to it. So I think a lot of people who think I'm not good at languages, you actually have no idea. And secondly, if you can speak English fluently, you're probably good enough at languages that you could learn another one. You will have things, you'll have bad habits and you'll have knowledge that you would have to unlearn. But humans are generally pretty decent at languages, period. If we weren't, you wouldn't be able to speak a single one, right? Because that whole myth about like adults learning languages right. slower than children, that may be somewhat true, but it's not because, oh, your brain is less plastic or any of that crap. That's a myth uh, as far as I understand it. The reason is because now you think that you know what a sentence looks like because that's what a sentence has looked like in your native language your whole life. But it's not because your brain stopped being able to learn them. It's because you're you're worried about picking your kids up from school, whereas a kid who's learning a language is worried about whether blue is blau or, you know, something else in another language. They don't care at all. They're very present. And so I just kind of do that. You know, when I'm in Chinese class, I just go, OK, well, no one's allowed to call me on the phone. There's no notifications. I'm reading a Chinese book with my teacher on Skype and she's keeping me accountable. I'm not some sort of miraculous language learner who picks up a Chinese dictionary and memorizes that at Starbucks <laughs> or an airport lounge. You know what I mean? But but I do sense this theme of of communication now with the law. Clearly, you're good at communicating, and 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 eventually, sort of vocation and passion find each other. So, you've been in podcasting for 12 years, which is pretty much the Stone Age of of podcasting. Oh yeah. Um, other than traditional radio shows, I can't imagine there were any classes or models or you know anything to follow when you first started this. So, how did you even get into it in the first place? So when I was working on, eventually after law school or during law school, I worked on Wall Street as an attorney. And 
I remember going into the office and being like, oh my God, I'm going to get fired because everyone here is really smart and everyone here works really hard. And sure, they thought that of me when they hired me, I would imagine. <laughs> then you proved them wrong. And I proved them wrong. <laughs> um, but the problem is, is this. When I was in, let's say, high school, it was like, hey, I don't you know, kids are like, oh, I don't really understand this. I don't really understand that. And I was like, oh, I, I can teach myself the geometry on the test. Look at me. I'm so smart. Right. So I would do that. But then I got to college at the University of Michigan and it was like, oh, crap, everyone's smart. So I had to find another competitive advantage other than being a guy who was just kind of good at stuff, you know, in school and able to do that. So what I found was showing up to class was a superpower because nobody was really doing that. They were drinking all the time. They were hanging out all the time, having all kinds of fun. And I basically said, hey, if I do the homework and I show up to class and I sort of pay attention here, I pretty much have it made, you know? So I did a bunch of that. And then I got to uh, law school and that was kind of the same thing. Believe it or not, a lot of the smartest kids in law school, they also had this problem where they were killing it throughout high school and college because they were brilliant. But then they got right. to law school and everybody was kind of smart. And there was this phenomenon where people were like, well, rather than try and fail, I'm going to pretend like I don't care. I'm going to go to the bar. So they all kind of relegated themselves to B and C level, which is fine. You can still get a job as a lawyer, especially if you're doing public interest or something like that. No problem. So I just worked my butt off and worked like 16 hours a day and was able to graduate in the top half of the class. So I got this Wall Street job, but then it was like, uh-oh, this is all the people that worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week. This is all the people that are naturally smart. We have all filtered in here. Now what? They're gonna find out that I'm like the bottom of this ladder, this totem pole, and I'm in trouble. So I started to think about how I could work from home because I thought if I work from home, It'll take them longer to find out that I don't belong here. So sort of classic imposter syndrome. And then that'll take them longer to fire me, at which point maybe I'll have figured out how to sort of be a passable attorney and I'll be able to make it in this career. And what happened was there was a partner named Dave and Dave was never in the office, but he was like a really young partner. And I thought, OK, this guy, he knows something that no one else does. He's from Brooklyn and he has a tan. So he, he's got like some sort of life secrets. Right. And I figured he worked from home all the time because he was never in the office. So one time I caught Dave one of the three times he was in the office during the summer in the elevator. And, I, and he was supposed to be my mentor because, like, I don't know, HR had assigned him that role or something. And so him and I are talking and he's like, ask me whatever you want. And I said, how, how do you um, how come you're never in the office, but you're a partner? Do you work from home all the time? And he was like, not really. Why? Who's saying that? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. You know, you're, like, you're never here. And. You're a partner and you're young, so I, I don't really get it. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm bringing in business for the firm. You know, that's why I'm not here. I'm I, My time is better spent outside the firm generating business. And my mind kind of exploded at this because I thought, wait a minute, you're kind of like a salesman. It never occurred to me that there was a specific way that law firms generated business. I just thought like people looked them up in the yellow pages and called them or something, right? I had no clue. So that was really interesting for me because I was like, wait a second, how do they know who you are? And he goes, yeah, I go to charity events. I do jujitsu, you know, I'm hanging out on playing racquetball and all this stuff. And I was just like, wait, 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 wait. 
you're generating business, but if you're inside the office, you bill like a thousand bucks an hour. And he was like, yeah, but if I get a million dollar law deal or in law deals, you know, every quarter, who cares about my billable hourly bonus? Who cares if I bill a thousand bucks an hour? I can delegate that to someone else who's not out generating business. So for me, that was like a really big eye-opening game changer because that was the new competitive advantage that I then realized I needed to, to generate and have because if I could do that, then I could write my own ticket, really. And so I started to think, all right, I'm going to learn how to network. And that's what I started to focus on after that. And how did networking turn into the, into the podcast? Right. So the way that that turned into the podcast was I thought, okay, I'm going to go and learn how to network. So I, I remember like probably at the time yahooing, cause I don't know how many people Googled yeah. back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yahooed, right. <laughs> you know, networking classes or something. And I think like Dale Carnegie showed up. So of course I read right. the book and I, I took a Dale Carnegie class and I remember going into that class and being like, you know, this is okay, but a lot of what we're doing here is kind of like, Here's how you remember Bob Glazer's kids' names. You know, he'll be really impressed. Look him in the eye and have a firm handshake. And I'm like, uh, okay. You know, but after a while, I thought, if somebody doesn't like me, is it really because I didn't look him in the eye and have a firm handshake? Or is there something else more nuanced going on here? Because I think I like this guy, Dave, who hired me, this master networker guy. Do I like him because he looked me in the eye and had a firm handshake? No, I liked him because he was like, cool and fun and funny and personable and like made jokes and seemed really comfortable and seemed really confident. That's why I like this guy. So I want to learn that. And it just really, at that point dawned on me, I was not going to learn those nuances of being personable, charismatic, cool, if you will, from a guy wearing a sweater vest at the local YMCA teaching a Dale Carnegie class. I just wasn't. <laughs> Felt a little outdated. Yeah. And, yeah. and it wasn't even outdated. It was just, it was great for the other people in the class who were like 55 yeah. middle management. They were there cause they, and I remember one or two of these ladies in particular, very cool, sweet people. And they were like, I'm here because I need to learn how to run meetings because my boss said that if I can't run the meetings, he can't promote me and I'm stuck where I'm at. And I remember them being like, Jordan, why are you here? And I was like, I want to learn how to generate business for this multinational white shoe law firm. And everyone was like, what? You know, it was just like the goal was completely out of whack. Some of these people worked at the post office. Other people worked at like sort of low level consulting type stuff. And I realized there's nobody here from Deloitte. There's no one here from Accenture. There's no one here from white shoe law firms. There's no one here from Chase. There's no one here from Deutsche Bank. You know, there's no one here from Goldman. Like none of our clients from this law firm have people here. And, and I thought maybe they'd teach it in-house somehow. So I asked around and nobody had a clue what I was talking about. Learn how to network. Just put yourself out there, bro. Whatever. You know, that's what that was the beginning and the end of the advice. And I thought... This is a good sign, actually, because if I figure this out, then in five years, when everybody else figures out they need to learn this, I will have a five, half decade head start on all of my peers, at which point I realize this is sort of the secret third path. This is the competitive advantage that exists that no one else even knows about yet, which is why nobody can give me advice. So I, I started to dedicate my life to figuring that out. So I read 
every book, took every class that I could. I started finagling little things like my cop buddies would be like, yeah, I just took a class on confidential informants. And I'm like, what did you learn? And they're like, oh, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, no, no, no. I want to learn every little bit of what you learned. And then I would take like a comedy class, an improv class, an acting class. And I was like, okay, here's how this stuff relates to networking. And then one day I ran into a couple still in Ann Arbor because I, I, my summer associate gig was over. I went back to Ann Arbor to finish law school. I decided that I was really shy and I started to go out a lot by myself. And I met this couple, this older couple, and they were huge into charity. And they started inviting me to all of their charity events. So I'd be sitting at a table with like a, the head of surgery at University of Michigan Hospital, like a $2,000 plate charity. And I'm just showing up and like eating steak. And she's like, oh, hey, honey, let me introduce you to people. And I went, this is what super high level networkers do. This is what those people are doing. And she'd be like, come out on our boat. And I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about boating. And she's like, trust me, come out on the boat. And I'd go out on the boat and it'd be like the biggest real estate developer in Ann Arbor, the biggest uh, donor for the charity, the head of surgery at U of M hospital, one of the deans of the university. And I was like, what am I doing here? And they're like, honey, you'll understand later what this is all about. And I just thought this is magic. So I started teaching this what I knew about nonverbal communication, body language, networking, setting up events to other law students. And let me tell you how many people cared. Zero. <laughs> Zero people cared. And even business school students and other grad students, they just did not care at all. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. 
Because they're all they're all going to be behind a desk, you know. Every you were talking about it before. It's funny when everyone yeah. talks about the law, they act like everyone is a trial lawyer and a, you know <laughs> making opening statements and arguing. That is not what ninety five percent of the people in the law do. These guys are all going to be behind oh, desks yeah. for a couple of years, pushing paper. Not only even behind desks, but even the people that were like, "Oh, I get network." I look. I gave a talk at U of M Business probably two years ago now this is the number one or number two whatever top top something business school in the, in the nation right one of the top at ross and i remember going in and giving a talk and i thought you know don't these guys these kids must know this a lot and the professors were like you'd be surprised and i talked to my wife's cousin and i said what'd you think of the networking thing she goes oh, i didn't really catch it i'm sorry and i said oh well you know you don't think networking is important she goes i'll tell you a lot of these B-School students, they're already really social. I don't think we really need it. And I told the professor of the B-School what she said, and he goes, that's the problem. These guys are all great at spreadsheets, and they're great at going out drinking with each other, and they cannot network to save their lives. They can't get jobs unless the jo- – they think networking is showing up to on-campus recruiting with a stack of resumes and accepting which are the job offers that they find most – like they have no idea what networking in the real world, making connections is really like. And I was laughing because I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that too. Oh, I just have to work here long enough and I'll get to know everybody in the industry. It's a joke. That's not how this works. And And people usually find out – when they get passed up for a promotion by somebody they hired four years ago and that person's now their boss and they're like, what happened? And it's like, yeah, that person's been networking and working on great projects for like four or five years. You've been slaving away here, hoping that you get noticed. Like that's not how this works. And so we often learn the hard way. And so I started talking about this stuff on the podcast And people around the world were like, oh, I need this. But none of them were grad students. They were all professionals. They were all sort of like mortgage bankers and salespeople because they're the ones that got it because they're the ones who were like, this is how you get paid. You know, all the guys and gals my age, they already knew everything. They were they needed like four or five more years before they slammed into the wall of reality. That was the 2008 recession. So that turned into the Art of the Charm podcast and mm-hmm. became what top five podcast, I think, or top ten on Apple. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And I have I yeah. eventually shifted it to dating because honestly, nobody even cared about what I was teaching. Like I had a cadre of professionals, but nobody really cared. Like the vast majority of people wanted to learn how to like go out and be great at dating. And so that's one of the reasons that I shifted to the Jordan Harbinger show was because I had to go back to the networking thing. It's easy enough to go from professional networking to dating, but you can't go back and expect to retain credibility. So I I sort of had to restart. Was there anything from your law degree that helped you as you were, as you were launching your podcast career? Mm, No, I will say probably (laughs) not. No, legitimately no. People are always like, oh, you, didn't you learn how to think differently? Yeah, but I mean, I could have taken like a Skillshare class on logical fallacies and learned a lot of what I think I probably learned in law school. Like, don't get me wrong, hanging around smart people for three years is really great. And that was the only way you could do that back then. But now you can literally go to different networking events, masterminds, depending on what you go to, not the scammy get rich online ones, but the ones where people are doing real work, you can learn a lot of what you 
previously could only learn by reading stuff in college. I learned about the law. It was interesting. I passed the bar in New York. I practiced for a while. I wouldn't say I regret it per se, but if I had to do it over again, I certainly would not attend. I thought you were going to tell me that you had like airtight advertising contracts, <laughs> you know, and you, yeah. you nailed that part of it, but no, nothing. All right. I mean, look, I, I, I do read my contracts. I do <laughs> negotiate carve outs and things like that. So there is that. However, I'm pretty sure I was doing that. I was a pain in the butt for businesses and things like that when I was in high school and college. I don't think I needed a law degree to be like, hey, this part where it says you can't work outside the business, I don't want that. You know, that's you don't need a law degree to read most contracts. If if there if you get a contract and you need a lawyer to read it, you yeah. should just hire a lawyer. But most agreements are supposed to be simple enough that you can read them yourself. I, I have given that advice, particularly around construction projects, or I built my house 10 years ago, and people say, well, tell me about the contract. And I was like, look, by the time you're at the contract, you're in a world of trouble. The, the only thing I would tell everyone is, is make sure that the payments are in line with the delivery <laughs> around stuff. That, mm-hmm. is, that, that is the only chance you have. If you're pulling out that contract, uh, everyone's, everyone's in trouble at that point. But you know, that was a good segue I think for uh, what you just said around, you know, making the shift. So, you know, you've talked pretty publicly about um, separating from Art of the Charm in in 2018, deciding to start your own show. I know you, you kind of gone into that. So I, I, not without going into the details, you know, this was sort of a hard restart. So I, I, I'd love... I have a lot of friends, you know, midlife crisis time. I'd love your perspective on a higher level and kind of starting over and how you approach that mentally and then actually, because I know a lot of people right now who I've talked to, they're kind of, they're afraid to walk away from stability or good for a shot at something great. And and to do what you had to do, you had to totally start over. Yeah, I had to start over from scratch, you know, social media accounts, the podcast feed, everything, the website, everything. And, you know, it was worth it because I actually, the first year I was out, I made basically, I think possibly even more money than I made before when I was working with the old company, except I didn't have any dead weight that I was working with. And additionally, the, the stress level was initially really high, but is now much lower, even though I'm in litigation with the old company and they're not doing so well. And it's kind of like, it was very vindicating. And it's something that I wouldn't have done on my own, right? I had to rip that bandaid off or I would have stayed sort of comfortable uh, financially, but working with people that I just absolutely could not stand. And that frankly, just didn't have what it takes to be successful. And so like, when people are looking at that whole sort of idea that good is the enemy of the great, where they're stuck in something comfortable, it can be really scary to take the plunge but I think there are better ways to do it. And I know that it's very trendy advice right now to be like, go all in, quit your day job and become self and do not do that. <laughs> There's actually data to show that the most successful businesses were all more were started despite the venture capitalists sort of perpetuating that, that a lot of them were started as a side gig at night. Absolutely. Right. No, it's very Instagrammy to be like, jump in and do it. But first of all, I think that advice sounds sexy because anytime someone recommends bold action, they seem brave, but really they're telling you to be brave and do something stupid. (laughs) And, And the residual benefit, of course, is look at all the people that are telling you, like, go all in and pursue your dreams. Show me that person and I'll show you a person that sells a course on how to make money pursuing your dreams or making money online. Like if you look at any of these so-called influencers, these sort of inspirational bozos, 
they all sell courses on this. And of course, they're going to give you the recommendation to quit everything and go all in. When are you otherwise going to dig into your wallet and give those guys five grand? It's either going to be when you decide to go all in or when you go all in and then you're failing and you're not making any money and you go, look, I need this information to make a go of things. So you're going to invest in them. They do not care if you can't feed your kids, right? They don't care. It's not their problem. So whenever people ask me, like, should I... Should I quit my day job and do this? My answer is always probably not. The only time you should quit your job and go off on a side hustle is when you have created an income stream with that side hustle and you are doing so much of the work that only you can do. You can't outsource anything else. You've already outsourced all of the things that you can outsource. You've hired people to work for the company that can do things for you. The only limitation now is your time and you're spending your entire weekend working on it and you're spending, you know, from the minute you get home till the minute you pass out on your keyboard working on that business, doing only things that you can do, then yeah, you should consider quitting your job and going all in because that's how you scale. But if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't like my job, I think I'll quit it and go all in. And then you spend the next week doing Twitter and social media posts that you could have hired somebody for $2 an hour in the Philippines to do for you. You have made a mistake, right? <laughs> you, you should be getting pulled by your side hustle in your new business into that business full time. You should not be getting pushed by the job you have now and your dissatisfaction with your current life. You should not be getting pushed out. You should be getting pulled in, not just because you are attracted to it, but because you cannot scale if you don't add more of your own time and yours alone, not something that you could have hired somebody else to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I would call that pragmatic inspirational advice, <laughs> unlike some of the uh, advice peddlers. But but look, it was I mean, was it a scary process? I mean, sometimes it's easier when someone else pulls the Band-Aid off, probably easier than you pulling the Band-Aid off. Right. I mean, at that point, you're all in. Yeah, that's the thing is like people are like, it's like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. And it was it was bad. Right. It was really bad. But the best part of this is that I didn't have a choice at the time. And so like all those excuses people make for not starting and I had them, you know, oh, I should do my own thing. Oh, they'll never let me do this. They'll never let me do that. We had negotiated an amicable split. I negotiated the amicable split with the old company before starting the Jordan Harbinger show and they didn't honor the deal. And I was at first I was like so devastated and I thought, oh, my God, they're taking my old show and they're rest. They're surfing on this thing that I had built and they're generating revenue based on all the stuff that I created. But then I realized. I don't have a non-compete. I own a third of the company. I'm the one who created all of this. I can do it again. My whole team left with me. So it was basically like they fired themselves. Like, yes, they kept a bunch yeah. of company resources, but it was almost like if you fired somebody and then they stole from you and it's a bummer and you're damaged by that. But it was kind of like that. But the inverse, it was like I got pushed out, but my entire team. So all the talent leaves with me. They keep a couple of the resources inside the company, so we have to start over. But the listeners are like, oh, I was listening to Jordan for 11 years. I'm not going to start listening to these two clowns who are taking over the show. So the audience leaves. The advertisers leave. And, of course, one of the things that, that is being litigated is like, you took the advertisers. And, and my lawyer's like, 
did you solicit the advertisers? And I said, no, I told them I left and then they all left. And there he's like, well, that's not a crime, right? Like, like yeah. if, if you leave and you're the face and you take people with you, that's a good thing, right? So I realized, oh my gosh, all of the team, all of the listeners, all of the advertisers, my network re-signed me as a solo act instead of the company. Like if they're all betting on me, I should probably quit crying and start betting on myself too, instead of being like, wah, I can't do it. Because so far the scoreboard looks like I'm the only person who thinks I can't do this, right? Potentially. Perfect segue into my next question, which was, you know, you've written a lot about imposter syndrome uh, and I'm curious, like talk a little bit about what's your experience been with that and how have you overcome it? Like, again, you're explaining the situation. You got everyone sort of betting on you and you're not even, you know, questioning betting on yourself in that case. Yeah. So what's really funny about imposter syndrome is that everyone has it. So you're not really, you're not alone if you have it. And it's, it's also one of the hallmarks of high performers. Yeah. So I don't, do you have kids, Bob? I forget. I have three. Yeah. You have three, but they're little, right? Uh, they're medium at this point. They're yeah. medium. Okay. <laughs> Cause I always, I love this example, but it's easier when people have kids that are a little older. I, I don't, but let me tell you this high school kids, no imposter syndrome whatsoever right? They are fully confident that they are awesome at whatever they do, generally speaking. You know who does have imposter syndrome? Doctors, lawyers, special forces personnel, intelligence agents, CEOs, anybody in the C-suite for that matter, and basically any high performer. They've got imposter syndrome like crazy because it's a feature, not a bug in a lot of ways, right? All of these little things that we look at where we say, oh no, Bob's better at this than me, and we're going for the same position. Oh, you know what? I better work harder because so-and-so, that guy doesn't have any kids, and he's in the office six days a week, and I'm only here five. That's what causes imposter syndrome. All the stuff that caused you to be awesome at whatever it is that you're doing now, that's what caused imposter syndrome in the freaking first place, right? So that is a hallmark of high performers initially. And so I didn't really know that. I mean, I knew it from interviewing people on the show, but I didn't see it as a universal truth until I started really doing, you know, years and years of interviews. And I found that all of these amazing people, and I'm talking about like Grammy award winning artists are like, they're going to find out I'm a fraud. You know, it's like everybody has, I guarantee you, Oprah, Richard Branson, like all these guys probably have this. Yeah, it's the people who are terrible at what they do and overconfident. <laughs> you know, they're the ones who don't have right. it. Yeah. They don't have it. Why would they? <laughs> yeah. They're not looking at what anybody else is doing. They're just looking at themselves and going, man, I'm awesome. I'm good. Right. Yeah. They're not comparing they're not comparing themselves against people who are actually getting results. They're just looking at themselves in the mirror and flexing. So like this was something where I realized, okay, if this is a universal truth and everyone has it. And it's a hallmark of a high performer. And I'm looking at the evidence and my team believes in me. My family believes in me. My listeners believe in me. The advertisers believe in me. The network believes in me. I don't really have a choice. I can go work at Walmart for a couple of years and like lick my wounds. I'm not going to do that. So I should probably just restart and do what I do best, do what I love and do it on my own. And I did. And it took, you know, I had some plenty of sleepless nights, a lot of anxiety, still in litigation, but the Jordan Harbinger show is bigger than the the old show ever was. We have 5 yeah. million downloads a month. The other show never even got close to that. Congratulations. And I, I'm going to segue into the 5 million downloads a month. And, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of where podcasting is today. Because I know there's a lot of people 
starting podcasts and and would love to get your advice and know when to do and when not to do it. But you and I spoke at a conference on this. It's something that's driven me crazy for the last few years as I'm I'm asked to speak on more and PR people reach out and they give me stats. There's no universal stats in the, you know, you just said 5 million downloads a month. Like that's a real number. You know, there's no Lexa ranking. There's no sort of third party that verifies this. You got Apple elsewhere. Like how are people to know, you know, other than the chart, how do you even believe whether a podcast has a listener or an audience or what should they look for? And is this, is this an opportunity? Yeah. Is someone going to become the Nielsen of podcasts or, or really have an objective rating on like whether anyone, you know, is listening to that podcast or not? You know, there, there are a couple ways to do this, but it's very hard. You have to be kind of a Sherlock Holmes. And, <laughs> and I get this all the time. Someone will go, Oh, you know, you should go on. So you should go on the, the read books for fun podcast because they're the number they're a top 10 business show. And I'm, I will, unless I've heard of it and it's called startup or Tim Ferriss show or the Jordan Armager show, or, you know, the daily from New York. I just go, no, it isn't like, I don't even have to hear them finish saying, I'm like, no, it's not. And I don't, I don't do that. Cause that's not nice. And not, I'm not fun at parties when I do that. But I will say that in my head I am because Everybody wants to take a screenshot of where they were like five minutes after they launched it to their email list and people, they went up in the ranks and got to like the top 50 of the subcategory of the subcategory. And then after an hour, they were like obliterated and never saw the top 200 ever again, but they got the screenshot and they're like top 10 in business. And (laughs) so you can't rely on that. You can look at people's downloads, but you have to be very careful. One, people will lie, but even let's assume they're not. People will go, his podcast has been downloaded over 10 million times. Okay, that's great. How long has it been going? Seven years? That's pretty crappy. That's genuinely not that good, right? It's not great. It's not horrible, but it's not that good, okay? It's like middle of the road. If it's 7 million times per month, that's very different. Okay, but nobody's going to say that. So you look at people who are marketing and you have to be very careful about when they say download numbers, five million downloads a month is what we're at right now. If I'm going to add up my downloads over the whole life of the whole show, sure, it's over 100 million times. Doesn't that sound impressive? But like you're not comparing apples to apples when people do that. The other thing that people will do is they'll go, yeah, we're a top 50 show. And, and they've got that old screenshot. That's sort of the number two. And then you have to really look at, since we don't have subscriber numbers and there's no apples to apples, one sort of trick that I give to authors who are doing a, a promo tour for podcasts and they don't have one yeah. of their own and kind of know how all this stuff works. I say, go on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as we call it. Look at the number of reviews. If they've got 100 reviews or 200 reviews and they say they've got you know, 300,000 downloads a month, maybe they're not telling the truth. If they've got like four, three to 4,000 reviews, they, they could have millions of downloads a month because getting a couple thousand reviews is actually really tough. But if they've got a couple thousand reviews and their show's been out for like a year, that's a really good sign. You know, if they've got a couple hundred reviews and their show's been out for a couple months, that's a really good sign. But if they've got a couple hundred reviews and their show's been out for five years, that is not good. Because even if their download numbers are are true and they're not full of it, that audience is so not engaged that over the course of X number of years, they've only managed to get a hundred or so people to write an iTunes review. Like that's that's pretty bad. 
that's a good indicator. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, you, you know, you had this discussion. I, I, I was asked to run a book to buy some bookers to join a podcast. And I said, well, how many, you know, you, you trained me. I said, how many downloads per episode on this guy? I said, well, 20,000. And that's actually a decent number that probably put, puts yeah. you in the top, you know, five or 10%. So I, I went on iTunes. I looked, there's like three reviews. I'm like, there's no way that this has, you know, 20,000. And it's like, you ask for a screenshot, like, it, you know, they pretend like, and you, you said this too to me, you know, they pretend like they can't get that data, but they can get that data, right? Any, anyone can launch it, oh, yeah. but I, I, it turned into a discussion. And what you find out is anytime I, I said, sure, I'll do that, then that's the host who emails me four pages of questions that they'd like me to fill out and ask me what they want to talk about on their show. It's like, well, I, I don't, <laughs> seems like you're outsourcing all the work to your guests. So I, I found a high correlation between those factors, the ones that sort of kind of overstate. I think there's a lot of lying, frankly, about stats, not even picking the best stat, but just outright lying <laughs> from what I've seen. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And then it correlates to how you watch that person produce their show when you get, when you get close to it. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people, and don't get me wrong, I have a pretty comprehensive show prep process that a lot of guests will go through, but I also do 10 times more work on that same show myself. Furthermore, you're not going to fill out questions. I just, I'm doing it because I want to make sure a lot of people will go, I can't believe you're making me do all this work. And I'm thinking if I'm interviewing Mike Tyson, he's not filling out this prep doc, right? Yeah. I can do enough of my own research. If you come out of nowhere and you say, I should be on your show. Cause I'm really interesting. You're filling out those prep docs. And the reason is because I need to make sure that you have clear thinking. So what's, yeah. what's sort of a, a little, little dirty trick of this is like, if somebody's got a large body of work, I don't need them to fill out these documents most of the time because there's enough going on. But you'd be very surprised. You get somebody who's like, I have a great story. It's really amazing. And they, they're vouched for by three of their friends. And you ask them to fill out these documents. They can't fill out five bullets on what they want to talk about. And that's yeah. a really bad sign because if you're trying to conduct an interview with somebody and they don't have five bullets of things they can talk about, how do you think that conversation is going to go? 
right? It's They might think it's really great because they're great at telling a story. But for something like the Jordan Harbinger show, I want practical takeaways for every episode that the audience can use. You know, we have worksheets for every episode that people can download. If you can't come up with three to five bullets, what am I supposed to put on that worksheet? You know, so there's something to that. However, the people that are often asking you to fill that stuff out, they're often just going, I don't really want to do a show. I just want a ton of content pieces. So you write an outline. I will sit there and go, "Uh uh-huh, that's so interesting, and then ask you the next question so that you can feed me this answer, dot, 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 I have a daily podcast that supposedly interviews a bunch of you know, thought leaders, whatever the hell that term means. And then they put it up, they get the search engine optimization, they sell advertising against it, and basically turn podcasting into Twitter, right, or blogging. And there's a reason that blogging is dead. Or they email you seven times and ask you to promote it, you know, to do all the promotion uh, on it too. So you write the answers to the questions, they interview you, and then we'd like you to promote it to your whole whole audience. So, you know, it'd be great if you could could give really like tough, straight out advice to, you know, there's CEOs out there, there's coaches, there's people, should I do this or should I do it? Like, why should they or why shouldn't they do a podcast? And then what are like, if you're starting it out, like, how do you do this? How do you do this right? Like, I, I believe in the, you know, the quote, if you, anything worth doing is worth doing well. So how, how should they know whether they should do this or not do this and whether it helped them or, or hurt them? The question I always ask, and you have to be honest with yourself about this because most people aren't slash can't slash won't be, would you do the show even if nobody is listening? Like for me, I would definitely and did for many, many years do a show when I didn't look at my download numbers because there wasn't a such thing as podcast stats. All I could look at were raw server logs and it was like, uh, yeah, some people downloaded these MP3 files and I was like, cool, man. And I'd check again in six months or three months, right? I had no idea if we were growing nothing. I was just building chops, talking to people. And so that was important because that made me love what I do. Whereas a lot of people, most people who start podcasts, and I give talks on why people should not do this. I, yeah. I give talks at entrepreneur events, and the title of my talk is often like, please, for the love of God, do not do another podcast. And the reason is because the room is half full of authors that are like, yeah, you know, I heard I should do a podcast. So I got a podcast. It's called The Finance Show with you know, so-and-so, and I talk about finance, and I got to think of who I'm going to have on next week. And I guess I'm just going to do some stuff of my own and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you sound like you're going to jump off the nearest bridge. You don't want to do a podcast. And they're like, no, but I need it because I got to sell my don't do a show. The the people who should be doing shows are people that are like, this is so fun that I want to do this. And I don't really care who listens because my show is about pet shops in the Miami area that have exotic animals. And it's so fun to talk about the types of things that they have and blah, blah, blah. Basically, you'd want to have that conversation, even if you weren't recording it. And then you're going to record it and make it available online, even if nobody listens to it. And you might build an audience of 100 people that are like, this is so cool. I love exotic birds. Thanks for making this show. That is your tribe then. But if you're doing the show because you're like, yeah, I'm going to get a huge audience of people that want business products, and then I'm going to sell them my business products and then i'm going to have mastermind class like forget it one that seat is taken two you're not going to be that good at it because 
This isn't blogging where you can hire a writer and scale that way. You are you are a performer if you are a talk show host. You are competing with radio talent. You're competing with radio talent and comedy talent that has their own shows. You're competing with all of these people who are really good at this. And your reward for getting good at it is you get to keep doing it. So like YouTube, easy to build an audience, but you can't swap yourself out for somebody else because they're looking for you personality-wise podcasting hard to build an audience and you can't swap yourself out because people are looking for you personality wise and if you don't believe that ask the guys that just booted me out of their company and look where their show is now and you'll see the proof is in that and in blogging maybe tough to build an audience but when it gets bigger you hire 10 more writers and you don't have to write another word in your life right so like it's very different podcasting it's a performance you have to get good at it you have to work on the skills you can't just sit there and hope that you're going to get famous off of this. That sort of notion that you're being put on is gone. There are 550,000 podcasts. You better have a damn good reason and a good idea of why yours is going to be unique and better than whatever else is out there. If you cannot clearly answer that, you can still do a show as long as you don't care if anybody listens. But if you are hoping that you're going to hit it, I got news for you. You're not going to. And the people that had done really, really big shows they tend to have done this for a long time. They have other platforms they lean on. And, and the podcast world is littered with people that have had email lists that have 200,000 people on them. And they're like, look, I know you say it's going to be hard to grow a show, but I've already got a platform. I've already got my list. I got 300,000 Twitter followers. I got a buddy that did that. Very successful entrepreneur. Huge email list. His podcast gets about 9,000 downloads an episode. Because your list doesn't care about that. It's not going to convert to that. People who read your emails, people who read your tweets, people who read your Instagram, they're not looking for to listen to you for an hour. They're barely looking to look at your picture for one half second. They're not trying to hear you for an hour. It's a very unique and different audience. And if you can't cater to that audience, you're in trouble. So that's why I say don't even think about starting a show unless you would do it if nobody listened. Because there's a damn good chance that for the first half decade, no one's going to care what you have to say. Well, that's great advice. And let's say someone listens to that and they say, I want to do it. What's the number one thing they can do to make a positive first impression with guests or partners or otherwise? Like if they're going to do it, what's the, where, what's their 80, 20, the one thing they should focus on the most when they're starting? Since you're not going to be the most talented and you're not going to be, I mean, you might be great, but you might not be the most talented, especially if people are doing a media tour that includes traditional TV and radio. The best thing you can do is outwork everyone. So like, look, I'm not particularly talented in any particular area, I don't think, but I can outwork everyone. So if I got an, uh, an interview with an author and he has a new book, I'll read the whole book, even if it's 30 hours long. And then I'll pick up his previous two books and reread those. And then I'll read the Wikipedia. And then I'll read the negative Amazon reviews. And then I'll read the reviews on Goodreads. And then I will look at his social media profile and go all the way back a year and find out what he's talking about. And then when they're like, so I recently got back from a country that most people haven't heard of. And I'm like, yeah, you went to Bhutan. That must have been incredible. And they're like, whoa, how do you know about that? Well, then I spent an hour researching Bhutan. And I know that you went there. And then I read in your book that you were interested in how monarchies control society in a way that, you know, the successful monarchies are benevolent, blah, 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 whatever. And they're like, oh my gosh, you spent 30 hours researching me before this. 
you know what you're talking about in areas where I am an expert, so I don't have to explain simple things to you, and I can have a fun conversation that is on the level, right? If, you, if you're talking with somebody who is an expert in app development, you better not be like, what's the difference between iOS and Android? You better not be like, oh, what type of programming languages do you use? They're going to be bored. That is very basic stuff. That is what journalists do when they have five minutes or 15 minutes to interview someone. If you're doing a show and it's going to be interesting for the guest, you have to have something that is specialized. And the way that you do that is you outwork all the other hosts. The good news is the bar is really low. Most hosts spend between zero and 30 minutes preparing. That's not formal survey data, but I trust me, I could tell. Well, 90, 92% of statistics are made up on the spot, so we'll go with that. It is, but but look at this. Here's how you can tell. Did you introduce me by reading the first paragraph of the bio that's on my website slash my Wikipedia? If so, you didn't do squat yeah. to research me. I could tell. That's another thing. Don't introduce me while I'm there. I know who I am. Unless you're recording your show live, do that stuff later. I don't have to waste any of my guests' time. I do the intro later. They know who they are. I don't have to talk about their college degree. Do not read the intro from their bio. There's all kinds of little things you can do to signal professionalism. The number one, though, outwork all the other hosts so that when they finally get to you, they're like, holy crap, this guy really knows what he's talking about. No wonder this show's popular. That's what you want people to say. So the good news is you probably just got the best advice that anyone can get on starting a podcast. The bad news is it wasn't the 10-second hack that you were looking for. And I think like anything, when you dive into someone who's really successful uh, and has imposter syndrome and on the surface and all this stuff, what you find is they just work harder and smarter than everyone in the background. So I'll flip it around for the last question. And this is usually, you can, you can answer this personally or, or professionally, or it can be recurring or singular. So it's multivariant. But what's a personal or professional mistake that you've learned the most from in your career? Hmm. You know, I always waited for other people to sort of like help me with things. And I always thought, oh, I can't do this by myself. But 2020 hindsight, I should have started my own thing probably like six, seven years ago instead of one year ago. I realized in an effort to make everything sort of be cohesive and have everyone get along, I was really subservient I was really subordinating my own needs to other people so that they didn't feel bad about themselves, you know, and you can't do that. Like, yes, you have to get along with people and yes, you got to make things work in a corporate environment. But at some point when you're the only one in the office and it's been like that for years and everybody else is making excuses, you have to decide whether or not you're just better off without those people. Even if you have history, even if you think you need what they do, you got to ask yourself, do you really need that? And do you really want the business that you'd created? Like I I spent 10 years at that old company and there were most days I was just like, I don't love what we're doing. You know, and I focused on the show, but I didn't care about other things the company was doing. And now that I'm not doing that stuff anymore, it feels amazing. And I think a lot of people have this sunk cost fallacy like, oh, I've been selling carpet for a long time and it's pretty cozy. Is that really what you want to be doing? Like you, you have to every year really reevaluate the direction that you're going in and make an annual plan and decide what you want to do and decide if you're excited about it. If I had planned my years, I planned this year and I planned last year. If I had done that five, six years ago, I would have gone, I'm not excited about anything that I'm doing. And it would have been really obvious that I needed to make a change. But instead, I convinced myself I was too busy 
And I just kept treading water, treading water, treading water and letting other people sort of sabotage the business so that they could say, you know, oh, we'll get there next year. And the second I decided to stop playing that game, I just got so much more excited about life and accomplishments. And and we started really crushing it. And, And I just wish I'd done that before, you know. That is salient advice for, I think, a lot of people who are facing similar situations. So, Jordan, I really appreciate your candor and willing to chat about all this stuff and your wisdom. Huge fan of your work and your podcast. And I, uh, I wish you much continued success as I'm sure it will continue to grow and move up the charts. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Again, for everyone, Jordan's podcast is The Jordan Harbinger Show, and we'll be sure to include the link in our show notes, as well as his website, where you can learn more about and connect with him. And thanks for tuning in. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.